welcome everybody this is natalie and this is sam and we're your hosts of wisterhood a podcast by women in science portland we created wisterhood to be our community of support for women in science and their allies and today we have a special guest the one and only melissa mudd melissa mudd is a research associate for the oregon Clinical and Translational Research Institute, OCTRI, or Oak Tree, at Oregon Health and Science University. In this role, Melissa is responsible for developing and implementing programs to advance the translation of innovative research to clinical impact, including convening and connecting regional partners. She also manages the Oak Tree Scholars Program to engage and support OHSU's early career investigators in their transition to research independence. Melissa holds a Master of Public Health from the OHSU PSU School of Public Health and is passionate about improving lives through science. Melissa has two young daughters that continue to motivate her to strive for equity in STEM. Hello, thank you for having me. So first, we just wanted to ask about your field of study. We just would love if you would tell us about it, what you do on a daily basis, and kind of what are the worst and best parts about what you do? Sure. So um, I, I guess my my field of study isn't entirely what I do right now. Um, I have a, like you said, a master in public health, and I'm I'm very passionate about health policy. Um, however, that's not exactly the role that I went into after graduation. Um, what I do is really revolves around um, supporting researchers and investigators and clinicians in um, the pathways and the journeys that they're on, um, which to me is really amazing because I get to see all of the really cool things that other people are doing and I get to be in awe of all of their brilliance, um, whether that's an early career investigator that's you know uh, perfecting their scientific field of study and their research identity um, or it's someone who's, whether they're new or established in their profession, um, they have this really cool discovery or this innovative idea that likely no one's thought of before, and they're trying to figure out how to make it come to reality so that can actually help people um, in the clinic or, you know, just generally improve population health. So um, there, there are some kind of ties and connections between my public health. Um, obviously, everything in translational and clinical research is about improving population health. So um, kind of on a, the grand scheme of things, I, I would say it was related, but maybe on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm doing public health work. Um, but I, I do have a background in business and that's kind of how I got to this, this place as well. Or one of the things that like really stuck out to me when you're talking was when you're talking about like, you know, early stage investigators trying to figure out what their research identity is. And could you like speak a little bit about like what that means and like might, what might some of the more common struggles for early stage researchers look like? For early career researchers, they, they, they're in this kind of like weird spot. They're not in school anymore. They're typically, um, they're not, um, and they're not established investigators like with their own R01 studies. Um, so they don't have their own research programs and they're still very much under their, the mentorship of their primary mentor and the other mentors that they have. Um, but they're, they're in that transitional stage of trying to be independent. Um, and so we have through Oak Tree, a, a workforce development program, and it includes the, the um, human investigations program, which is a master's of clinical research degree, as well as a couple other um, offerings. And then um, we have a bunch of support programs that help them learn things like 
how to be a really good mentor when they get to that spot, how to be a mentee, um, how to um, how to build up their research portfolio, like how to, you know, proposal support, how to get grants, um, and then just supporting them in their current research. So that typically the people we're supporting, at least in my programs, have career development awards. And um, those are like early stage research grants. Um, and so we're giving them the skills and tools through our programs to become an independent researcher. Yeah, I feel like a lot of times from like professors and stuff, at least the professors who like are a little bit more relatable, they'll say like, you know, uh, basically in grad school, they don't teach you how to teach. They just like teach you to do what you're supposed to do as a grad student. So it's like really interesting and like good to hear that they're that like OHSU and I guess other similar maybe institutions have like people like you who can sort of facilitate that gap between like I'm a student and like I'm on the other side of the table and do you feel like there is like a community that builds around that sort of I don't know uh transition period yeah we we definitely are trying to build a community um because Oak Tree is institution-wide so we're not affiliated with a particular um, department or school at OHSU um we have some we have our own internal um grants career development awards and training grants that um we have scholars and trainees on. And so um, we have our own kind of small community that we build. We have them do a journal club together um, and we're in the process of, of creating a, a team space so they can be a little bit more interactive with each other because they do face um, a lot of very similar challenges, even though their disciplines are spread across the institution. Um, we also have trainees and scholars that come from other institutions. So we have partnerships with Portland State and University of Oregon and Oregon State. Um, so we get a lot of varied, varied um, disciplines come into our programs, and we we do our best to foster some community. Um, it's it is hard because they're all dispersed, and right now we're all virtual, uh, <laughs> so that can add additional challenges. But um, they certainly face some of the same challenges, and um, I think that the more that we can kind of like this, we, we you know we want to bring everyone together and talk about those challenges so that we can help others. And that's something that we try to do with our programs. Yeah, I'm curious, what do you think are the most fun parts about your job? And then what do you think maybe are the least fun parts about your job? Uh, definitely the most fun is interacting with all of the different people that I get to interact with because I not only, like I mentioned, all of our trainees and scholars, they're across disciplines and I get to learn about their really fascinating skill sets and their really fascinating research. Um, and often I'm like, man, I should have done what they're doing. Uh, that would have been so interesting. <laughs> I wish I would have pursued something like that. But um, in a way, I get to kind of watch them do it all. Um, but the other half of my job is around innovation. So I'm, I'm not only seeing really interesting research and getting to see interesting ideas that come out of the research that get to put um, be put into real life situations eventually. It's a long process. But um, so that to me is the most fascinating. Just interacting with all of these brilliant people everywhere across the institution and getting to see the, the cool things that they're working on. You've asked about the hard, the worst or the hardest parts too. I, for me, there's a little bit of a, a struggle. I wish that I had a little bit more of a formal STEM background. Um, public health is, I, I don't know, I, maybe I always have a little bit of imposter syndrome. I kind of feel like I'm pretending that I'm a scientist because I'm like on the fringe a little bit. Um, and, and so, because I work with investigators that are 
have some very like technical basic research or um, some really, really technical clinical research that I don't fully understand because I just don't have any of those um, dictionary terms that they have. They have their, you know, whole healthcare language or a whole um, other research language that I don't fully understand. And I wish that sometimes I would have pursued something a little bit more traditional STEM so that I'd have a better input. You know, you mentioned how like sort of your background in public health isn't necessarily what you do on a day to day and how like your all like your education doesn't lead up to like necessarily what you do. And I, I feel like from my vantage point, like <laughs> I was talking to my mom the other day and she's like, you know, if you don't want to be a pre-med, like you can just switch your major to be public health. And I like was so mad because <laughs> I was already so stressed about my <laughs> final. I'm like, you do not talk to me about switching my major. <laughs> and I just like lost my shit. <laughs> um, but I'm wondering like when you were uh, like studying, did you ever like envision like a diff, like being and working in a field that was different from the one that you are in now? And like, how do you, do you feel like now, do you see things changing for you in the future? Yeah, there's a lot wrapped up in there. Um, <laughs> because as you said that, um, my sister is a doctor. And I remember when I was going through the program, she was like, oh yeah, I know some people who started out as their, with their MPH and it wasn't enough. So they went on to med school, like hint, hint, you should go to med school. And I was like, oh no, I don't, <laughs> I don't know about that. Kind of like I said in the beginning, you know, I, I am really passionate about public health policy. Um, there's just something about that, like really complex problem that I want to like pull out all of the little pieces and put it back together in some meaningful way. Um, and maybe that's how a scientist's brain works. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not really sure. Um, that maybe that's why I'm drawn to scientists. Um, yeah, but I don't, I don't know. Um, I'm not good at the, where, where do you see your future going question? Um, I'm a little bit more of a, let's see what happens. Um, I kind of got through a zigzag pathway thrown into this job and I'm, I'm sure that eventually I will end up somewhere else that I didn't really expect. Um, and it'll probably be great. <laughs> like understand that I feel the same way I'm like oh where do you see yourself in five years I'm like well you see you know <laughs> I mean sometimes it's nice to have goals but at the same time it's like things change so much all the time I mean obviously the pandemic is a great example of that it is really hard to set your future in stone um, but I am curious what first got you interested in public health and why you chose this path man where to start um after undergrad, I got a job that I absolutely hated in a field that I had no interest in um, and was looking for things to do. And I, I had always been really passionate about like food and nutrition and health just on a personal level. And I actually considered going back to school to become a dietitian um, or some kind of nutritionist or something like that. And um, I, I already have two undergraduate degrees and I realized that in order to do that degree, I would need a third. And I was like, nope, out, can't do another undergrad degree. <laughs> so <laughs> that, um, that was a no-go line for me. But what I, in research, I, I was looking through programs and something kind of similar that, um, I could go down some different avenues with was public health. Um, there's a lot of food-based components. I ended up taking some electives that were very, um, food system based. And so I really enjoyed those classes. And then I kind of, I think I found out that it's more like the system thing that I like. There's, we tend to have a lot of broken systems 
And while I don't, while I don't think I have all the answers, um, they they pose really big questions and really big challenges that I, I would like to dig into. Yeah, I feel like that's so cool because I think like all the doctors who I've talked to like moan and groan about the institution and how slow moving it is and how just stupid in general. Um, but it's, I think it would, like on one hand, it could be really refreshing to be on the other side of that equation and to specifically look at structures um, from the point of view of like trying to change them. Um, but I can also like imagine it could get kind of overwhelming. Um, like, do you, I mean, where, where do you like, where are you on that journey? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I recently got into a conversation with someone about our healthcare system and um, you know how it, it's always kind of the debate between, well, we should just go socialist and everyone should have free healthcare and, you know, going through the public health program and being Canadian, I understand that there are really big challenges with that kind of system. And um, there's a lot of intricacies in there that, that I actually don't think that would work feasibly in the United States, just, you know, population wise, the, the, our priorities are different. Um, and so that, that's always a fun, a fun debate to have with people. Um, because while I, I'd like to think of myself as progressive and I want certain things, I, I don't necessarily think that like the go-to places that everyone goes to solve the problem will actually solve the problem. And that's kind of where, I, that's where I end up. I get, um, you go through like these mood swings of being hopeful and being, um, thinking about all these new possibilities that can happen and then kind of going down a little bit and being like, oh, that's just really not going to solve the problem. Um, and then you're a little bit overcome with overwhelm of nothing's going to solve the problem. Um, and to, some, to be honest, sometimes that's how I felt in the Masters of Public Health program because everything seemed to be a big problem and there never seemed to be a good answer. Um, but I still like diving into those. I, yeah, I don't know where I really stand on that journey. Um, maybe it's just never finished. So I wanted to pivot just a little bit since you are part of Women in Science Portland. I want to ask some questions a little bit more around that. And just really what led you into science advocacy and outreach and wanting to join women in science? Yeah, um, I think that after I've been in my role at OHSU for about three years, and I think right around the time that I started, I learned about women in science and I attended, I know that I attended the mixer and I'm an introvert, so I didn't really talk to anyone. And I was kind of like, this was, this was cool. And I got to see all the things. Um, but I didn't really take too much out of it because I didn't really make big connections. I wasn't a student, but I was also just like way too early in my career to know what I was talking about. <laughs> and so a little while later, I, I think I was getting the newsletter and I was learning about the events and I went to some of the lunch and learns and they were really informative. Um, and then my boss actually was, is a passport member and suggested that I get a little bit more involved. And so I was like, okay, I think that would be, you know, a good leadership opportunity for me, potentially. Um, it would be an area that I could grow and I could funnel some passion into about, you know, helping others improve their lives. Um, and so that's, that's really where I started. And then, um, I was, when I met with the then president and vice president, I guess, for onboarding, um, I wanted to go where most help was needed. So that's kind of where I, and I, I do event-based stuff at work. And so I wanted a little bit of a change from that. 
Yeah, definitely. I think it's like really interesting to hear about like just people's like journeys to get to WISPDX just because I think in general, like how important word of mouth is and like, you know, being yeah. sort of like invited into somebody by somebody that you know, as opposed definitely. to like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's sure. and I'm like, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it definitely seems to like underscore the way that um, WISP works as like a community more than like just like you know, here are some informational tips on how you might negotiate and stuff like right. that. <laughs> um, like, was there ever, um, like, any sort of points, either, like, in your just overall journey in science and in your job or in WIS and advocacy that you felt like you faced some rejection or some, like, setbacks or failures in the moment that forced you to kind of have to reevaluate um because I know like I mean that can happen in advocacy work too Melissa's our fundraising chair um and especially like I feel like during COVID that can't be easy it was definitely a challenge um we had had our annual gala for a few years and then all of a sudden the pandemic hit and obviously we couldn't hold it in person we decided that it was um just a little bit too late to try and hosted online in 2020. So we bounced that idea around for 2021 to hold an online gala. And it just, for a lot of various reasons, you know, the functionality of different platforms and our access to different platforms, um, it just wasn't going to work. Um, luckily, the past couple of years, I've also been the manager of the Give Guide campaign, which is a um, Willamette Week Give Guide is an end of year fundraising campaign that's for nonprofits across Portland. Um, and so we had had some experience doing some online fundraisers. And so this year, unfortunately, we weren't part of the Give Guide, but we've taken some of those um, techniques and skills and things that we've learned from being part of that to, to do our own online fundraiser this, this winter. Yes. Yeah, so translation for our listeners is check out <laughs> our social media. So you might, you know, feel obliged or inspired to give back to your community. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, We'd appreciate it. Yes. A, a quick plug for our, our annual fundraiser. Our goal this year is to raise, raise $12,000. Um, and as, as probably all of the listeners know, Women in Science is an all-volunteer-run nonprofit. So what that means is all of the funds that we raise go directly back to our community where we need it the most. For 2022, we're focusing on three specific initiatives. So first is scholarships, which include professional development, funding for low-income schools or educators in STEM programs, and access to youth STEM programs like Saturday Academy and Girls Inc. And all of these scholarships range from $200 to $1,000. And about half the funds that we raise this year are expected to expand our high-demand scholarship program. Second, for the first time ever, we'd really like to compensate our negotiation bootcamp instructors for their time. Up until now, they volunteer about 16 to 20 hours per session that we run, and it's a really highly regarded program that we have. Honoraria for our speakers is number three. A new initiative in 2021 was to honor the time of our underrepresented speakers, which are all of them. And as, as we invite them to share their experiences, their expertise and their life stories with our community. So these are three programs that we're really, really proud of and we need our community support to continue with them. That's my plea. <laughs> somewhat focusing on like outreach and advocacy 
Um, one question we like to ask our guests is what does allyship mean to you, whether that's within Wiz, whether that's in your personal life, your work life? I am by no means any sort of expert on this, um, but I the word that comes up to me is authenticity. So I think um, for me, allyship is really about showing up and being authentic, whether or not you're you're always 100% right. Or it's about doing your best and it's about um, knowing that it's okay to show up, but also adjust and change and, and update and apologize and, you know, go through all of those normal human emotions, um, but not being afraid to, to just go through it and, and do what you can. Yeah, and I think that's great. And I mean, I think personally, I love the word authentic. I know a lot of people are like, ah, it's a buzzword, like, you know, being authentic. But I think, I don't know, it's one of my favorite words that we've, I've done lots of leadership training about, you know, leading and being an authentic leader and how authenticity really does just open you up to people. And I feel like people receive you better when you're authentic. And so I think that that's a really great just plug and point to make in terms of allyship because yeah we can't come to the table if you're not just going to be yourself and you're not going to be present and be willing to you know make mistakes like you said and correct those mistakes when necessary do you has there ever been like a situation where um you've had to like sort of exercise your authenticity in a way that like you know made some sort of you know, appreciable difference to what was happening, just because I think, like, sometimes, um, I don't know, I feel like authenticity is one of those words where it's, like, it's, like, authenticity and vulnerability are, like, you're, like, bachelor, bachelorette franchise words, where it's, like, it's, like, said so much on the show, it doesn't mean anything anymore, <laughs> so, like, I'd love some non-reality TV-based examples. Um, Gosh, that is a big question. Um, I don't know that I have a really good specific example of that. Um, I'm definitely one of those people in meetings that likes to listen more than they like to talk. And so I like to kind of soak up everything that I can um, before, <laughs> before I speak and try not to say anything stupid. It comes up way more when I'm raising my kids. <laughs> like, you know, I have to be in all sorts of situations that um you know you want to be a good role model and you want to set good examples but you also need to be yourself and you know have show them that you can be resilient and you know work show them how to work through different emotions and things like that and so if you can't do it yourself um which we all struggle with <laughs> sometimes especially in science spaces where it's like sometimes like you feel like they need to be authentic may also be the need to be personal but like that's not always like a door that's open <laughs> um or like you know whatever that might be like I mean it doesn't necessarily have to be the case but yeah I can totally understand that I guess I am wondering though about um like like you mentioned just now and also earlier like you're like being an introvert I'm wondering um I don't know I feel like sometimes in science in STEM spaces in general, it's a very much, at least like thinking about my, the way that my math classes <laughs> have gone, it's very much like who can like prove to the whole world that they've solved the problem first, which is ridiculous. And so do you ever feel like your introversion like is 
you know, caught like is a strength or sometimes like it might like take away from what could have been in a situation. Yes, all the time. Um, <clears throat> I definitely think that I, throughout my entire life, I think extroversion was always the the ideal and that's how you should act. That's how you should be. And maybe that gets back to your question about authenticity is I don't know how to do that. I mean, I've had to be in situations where I need to be um, more forthright or more blunt or um, have a, a stronger confidence to myself that I don't normally have all the time. Um, and that certainly comes up in situations as well, where, you know, I, I work with colleagues across institutions, across departments, um, and we have to make decisions together. And um, I think there's, there's a balance of it, but often it's hard to like, have a dissenting opinion sometimes, depending on the situation of who you're talking with. And that can certainly change a lot of big decisions or, um, but I think that I'm really fortunate that I work with my, you know, core group of colleagues. I, I don't have that problem with, you know, where maybe it's because it's a small group. We know each other really well. I'm not entirely sure what it is. They're all very um, warm and accepting and we get along really great. And so there's never been that kind of issue um, in, in our kind of team situation. So I think that is maybe something that continues to make me want to do this type of work and um, stay with the, the types of programs that I'm doing because you know I get to work with so many amazing people where um, it's not an issue. <laughs> I don't feel like I have to try and be someone else, I guess. I guess we've talked about this a little bit about you don't really have a lot of um, maybe an anticipation of what your career is going to look like down the line, but is there anything you feel like that you want to do? Is there something in particular you want to pursue that you haven't yet or that you plan to? Yeah, when you find that answer for me, let me know. <laughs> no, um, I mean, yes, there there are things that I would like to work towards. Um, I think that a lot of what I do right now is in support of things. Um, so I, I support people doing their research. I support people having innovative ideas. Um, so eventually I would like to get back to the doing part. Um, so I, I don't exactly know what that looks like, but I, I would like to eventually um, have a, feel like I'm making a difference in a way where I'm actually, um, you know, coming up with my, my own ideas and trying to pursue them in some way. I'm not entirely sure what that looks like yet, but I, I did, um, I've always kind of joked with people that if I went back to school, I would get my law degree. Um, I don't think that's really a possibility for me, <laughs> at least not right now, but. Yeah, I feel like even more recently, there's been a lot of like STEM to law crossover. Um, I like one of my best friends is like an astrophysics major and she is uh, gonna take her LSAT real soon. <laughs> so yeah. I, I'm wondering also just in terms of like when you think about like where your career is now versus where you might want it to go in the future like like as a mom like how does sort of your like you know trying to figure out like what the needs of your family are at a certain time like you know how to, like how does that influence the planning and I think like just because I think one thing is like 
none of us on the pod um, are parents and it's because that means we have more time <laughs> and so I just I'm like just really curious to hear what it's like you know being on the other side of that parent-child relationship <laughs> yeah I mean as a parent my kids are always going to come first and I'm I'm really fortunate to have a job and work with people that get that and have that same value um so I don't feel like I'm ever put in a position where I have to choose between my kids and my job um so having some kind of support system like that really I think is crucial to helping me stay employed I mean if I'm gonna have to choose I'm gonna choose my kids and so um but I would like to work because that's just who I want to be and so um I think that certainly in a any kind of career change that I may make in the, in the future, like that is definitely a piece that would hold me back from doing anything different. Um, you know, I'd be nervous about the type of teammates I would have um, and the type of company policy that would allow me to keep having that sort of flexibility and control over my priorities. That's huge. And I know a lot of a lot of jobs in STEM are not like that. So I'm definitely very fortunate. Yeah, that reminds me. <laughs> like before we came to tape this <laughs> this uh, episode of the podcast, I was working on biochem with one of my friends. He was saying like, like talking about what he wanted to be in the future. And he's like, you know what? I just like want to be a stay at home dad. And he pauses and goes, wait, I think I just want to be a stay at home man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the ideal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like, <laughs> I think it's just funny because I think um, it's like, being allowed to prioritize what you truly want to prioritize seems like it would be sort of a baseline part yeah, you of would think it would be natural <laughs> yeah <laughs> like an it should be obvious but just like I don't know it's great to hear that you know your team is so supportive and like that the vibes are just good <laughs> is what it sounds like um and it's interesting because we've talked kind of sort of a little bit about how like the whole team sport of I mean especially medicine but science in general is and I was wondering like if you could I don't know is there like a certain experience of having been on a team that is like so that sounds really collaborative and sounds very like um like conducive to new ideas and stuff like that is that how have your like past experiences measured up I, this is certainly the the most collaborative. I think it, maybe it's just the nature of the role too. Um, I have a lot more responsibility in this role. I'm a little further along in my career trajectory. Um, but I, I have definitely had some jobs in the past where it's very much um, like you do what the boss says and that's it. And you have you better have a very, very strong argument of why you should do something differently. Um, if you're going to bring it up. <laughs> and so those are certainly not um, the best environments to work in. Uh, they, they're, they're not empowering at all. And so, um, yeah, I, I've, I've certainly had both, both situations. Yeah. I also think like, that's part of the reason why also it's like so cool that you get to be sort of part of helping other investigators jumpstart their careers um, because I think a lot about like experiences in labs and stuff like that where I think the team 
aspect of that plays a much bigger role than you would think going in and I think it's like it's nice to just have some like fresh blood and um, people who maybe uh, are a little bit more sort of plugged into what their trainees might be looking for in a team <laughs> um and I think like that's that's all very like encouraging for sure yeah de definitely um and I think one thing that kind of plays into that too is uh for the first time of our so I manage what's called a KL2 award um which is a mentored career development award but it's um through Oak Tree and for the first time ever since 2006 we have five awardee slots and they're all female um and that like that that's new for <laughs> you know there's typically a lot of males in these types of roles and um so that's something at least we're super proud of that the fact that we have all five women we have some some definitely um diverse people on on the award um from field of study to personal demographics and that's um we don't get a ton of applications so that's something that we're we're pretty proud of no that's awesome and i think it's like yeah i mean this might be like obvious but it's just it never ceases to uh you know stand out to me that whenever it's like a panel of like all five men who like win stuff we're like we don't bat an eye but when it's like <laughs> five women were like oh my god this is great right. <laughs> um which is I mean yeah it is great um but like it's like you know it's really cool to hear that work is being done to sort of change the norms um so that like people like you know your daughters or me can be like wow <laughs> wait normal <laughs> yeah So before we close, we would love to play a little game called This Versus That. It's a it's a game that um, was first adapted um, or was first developed on the Versus Poetry podcast. But basically, the main goal is to choose either the best or the worst of something with the only object to be to try to answer as fast as you can. So my question sure. for you is, would you want to choose the best of things or the worst of things? Oh, um. <laughs> I'm gonna go with the best. We'll keep it positive. Nice. Um, <laughs> all right. So let's see here. What is the best winter thing to do? Oh, I, you know, I love to snowboard. I haven't been in years because I had kids, but <laughs> I'm hoping to go again this year. And so I'm super excited about that. So oh I love gosh, snowboarding. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, also, snowboarding is just like so cool. I, I just like could never be that person. <laughs> so props to you. Um, I, I started in fifth grade or maybe fourth grade on a whim. Like one of my friends wanted to do it and I was like, sure, okay. It's like a great age to start too because you like don't necessarily want to be 40 years old and like learning. Just <laughs> yeah, it's painful. Any yeah. any snow ice sport is not good when you're 40. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to learn. <laughs> and then there's always like the seven-year-olds who are like oh yeah, zooming right by. They scare me. <laughs> <laughs> um, how about what's the best decade? Ooh. Aside from the ones that I've actually lived in, I'm gonna have to go with the 60s only because 
my mom, uh, we, I grew up listening to oldies in the car and I was, we were in the car a lot apparently. Um, <laughs> and so I have this like really soft spot for all of these, all the sixties music. <laughs> yeah. I feel like 60s and 70s is definitely coming back, so. And the, all the bell bottoms, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm, okay, I will be happy as long as, like, the, like, the low-cut, like, jeans from the 90s. Oh, the, oh, gosh, yeah. Although I saw a really funny um, thing online the other day about uh, some meme of all the 90s kids, like, watching <laughs> all of the gen z kid like, and then it had a bunch of pictures of bell bottoms with like wet all, halfway up their legs it's like if you know you know <laughs> yeah. I'm just waiting for you all to realize that they're really uh, not practical <laughs> yeah it's true how about the best cookie Ooh, because we're coming up on holidays i'm gonna have to say um like peppermint fudge yes uh, <laughs> i think like Thin mints are like the mm. other side of the coin to peppermint fudge. And I'm just so excited for Girl Scouts. <laughs> <laughs> While we're on food, what's the best way to eat eggs? Oh, poached on toast. Oh, interesting. I feel like you have to yeah. be good at it. <laughs> it's like, definitely an art form. Yeah, <laughs> you can't mess it up. Best pasta shape. Hmm. I think I'm a, a fan of just good old fashioned penne. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's not the old-fashioned type, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely can't go wrong. What about That's the all the sauce inside. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what about the best place to read a book? I have a couple places. I like, I guess, by a window, like by nature, is the overall theme. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think like this is the best question to ask introverts because they're like, I have so many. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all anywhere is a great place to read a book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, last one. How about the best coffee order? Ooh, um, I'm actually I'm not a fan of coffee, but I like chais. Mm, yes. Um, well, you won! Yay! I won. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I got them. I got them right. <laughs> yeah. One hundred A plus. Awesome. <laughs> um. Well, thank you so much for coming on the pod. It was so fun. So I think that, you know, more or less wraps up um, our conversation today. Thank you so much for listening to Wisterhead and make sure to subscribe so you'll know when we drop more episodes and comment so more folks can find us or just tell people about us. That's the best way to spread the word and tell us your stories or ask questions you'd like answered on the pod. You can email us at podcast at womeninsciencepdx.org. We would love to hear from you. And of course, special thanks to Homo Kosoriani who designed our cover art. See y'all later.